Folks, have open before you that passage, please. Acts chapter 24, page 1121. I want to say thank you to Philip for leading this evening at quite short notice. Um, Being married to another of our worship leaders when Fiona falls sick, Philip is the the nearest port of call for, for someone to step in. So thank you, Philip, for that. Let's pray together just now. Father God, we know the power of your word. By your word, you spoke this world into being. We know that when Jesus was among us, it took simply a word of his, peace be still, to calm a raging lake in Galilee. Father God, we pray that your word would be powerfully at work among us this evening, that you would create new life in us by your word, that you would bring us peace and a sense of your perspective on things by your word. We pray that your spirit would come and and make your word real and living to us again this evening. Amen. Whenever we try to share the gospel with other people, it can be tempting to vary our gospel for the the different people with whom we're speaking. We can have one gospel for one person and one gospel for another. We can be tempted on occasion to make the gospel appealing if we think that's what's needed in that situation. Uh, We can be tempted to leave out what we perceive to be the hard parts. I think that pressure to to change our message, the gospel that we share, that that pressure begins to bear considerably whenever we're dealing with people of power and influence. We don't like to offend powerful people. We don't like to get on their wrong side. We're careful when we approach people who have influence over us. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, think of your boss and the the kind of relationships you might have with him or her, and the way in which you don't feel quite as free sometimes to speak there as you would elsewhere. The pressure to vary our gospel, I think, uh, can also come to bear whenever we're talking with people who have a reputation of, of gross immorality or of being very hard people. We're tempted then to downplay the the righteousness of God and his judgment on sin and the need for self-control in the life of a Christian. You could add to my examples other occasions where you've felt tempted to vary uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ as you share it with people around you. Paul didn't vary his gospel. He never did it out of fear because of the people he was sharing it with. And chapter 24, I think, of Acts gives us a wonderful illustration of Paul sharing his gospel with full courage and confidence, his trial before Felix. I'm going to deal with this passage in two major sections, one that deals really with the trial itself, which takes up most of the chapter. But I'm going to leave a bit of time at the end to to look at how Paul... uh, 
stands before Felix and his wife Drusilla and shares the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Let me remind you quickly or share with you, if you're new to this series, uh, the plot at this point, what's been going on in Acts in these recent chapters. Paul was dramatically converted to Jesus Christ 20-something years earlier in his life. He spent those intervening decades traveling around the known world of his time, sharing Jesus Christ with people throughout pretty much half of the Roman Empire of his day. But just recently, he had returned to Jerusalem for the first time in many years. And while he was there, he was lynched by a mob of angry Jews. He's accused of undermining the Jewish faith, of desecrating the Jewish temple. So the commander of the Roman troops in Jerusalem arrests Paul, not because he holds him guilty of anything, it's for his own safety that he arrests him. Claudius Lysias, for that's the the Roman commander's name, he has Paul sent to Caesarea to the Roman governor of the time, Felix. The letter at the end of chapter 23 Lysias's letter to Felix serves as a useful summary of the matter so far. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he was a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions of their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. Whenever we get into chapter 24, now we're going to look at Luke's account of Paul's second trial This time he's on trial not before a Jewish court, the Sanhedrin, but before the Roman authorities, particularly Felix, the governor of Judea. In verse 9, we uh, see the story of how the high priest Ananias and a number of elders brought a lawyer called Tertullus down down to Caesarea to press charges against Paul. There's There's an overblown and a very pompous introduction. And then in in verses 2 to 4, Tertullus makes his case against Paul. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges that we're bringing against him. Paul's defense comes in three parts, and we'll, we'll move quite quickly through this. He's responding to three particular accusations made against him. First, firstly, he's been accused of being a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. And I guess in particular this recent riot in Jerusalem. Well, Paul makes a point that, that the accusation just doesn't stand up. It's only 11 days ago that he arrived in Jerusalem. Now, he's been five days in in custody in Caesarea. He had spent a couple of days traveling from Jerusalem to Caesarea, and before that, he had spent a couple of days in custody in Jerusalem. 
So if you, if you work all that out, there were literally only two or three days left. And here Paul's being accused of starting some sort of an uprising that gripped the whole of Jerusalem. Paul says it just doesn't add up. It's only 12 days ago, he says, that I arrived in Jerusalem. So this first charge of being a troublemaker, he refutes it. To the next charge that he was desecrating the temple, Paul replies, my accusers did not find me arguing with anyone in the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. They cannot prove to you the charges they are making against me. In verses 17 to 21, he gives some detail again to to Felix of what happened in Jerusalem those 12 days ago. At the initial incident, you'll remember this if you were here with us a fortnight ago, Paul is charged with bringing a Gentile into the Jewish court of the temple, but it's entirely untrue. It's just not true. No matter how many trials Paul stands and how many times this accusation is made against him, it will never be substantiated. There is no evidence. It didn't happen. The first two charges Paul refutes, it's Tertullus's third charge that sticks. Or at least triggers a confession of a sort from Paul. He's accused in verse 5 of being an, a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. To this charge, Paul replies in verse 14, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way which they call me a sect. Paul stands before Felix and he says, if you are accusing me of following the God of the Jews, in particular of worshiping his son, Jesus Christ, the savior of the world, my master, if that's what you're accusing me of, then I've only one plea. Guilty as charged, your honor. I want to spend a couple of moments thinking about Paul's confession here before we look at his evangelistic interaction with Felix and Drusilla. Notice firstly that Paul refuses to be cast in the role of wacky religious innovator. He says in verse 14, I believe everything that agrees with the law and that's written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God that these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Paul's insisting that his views are not contrary to the views of historical Judaism. He worships the same God, believes the same truths, shares the same hopes, and cherishes the same ambition. He's not a madcap innovator. He's loyal to the faith of his ancestors. Friends, I think that's worth dwelling on for a moment. Paul's approach here, as we consider how we do our evangelism in Ulster at the beginning of the third millennium. We are often evangelical Christians who take their faith seriously, and I think it's particularly true of the media, maybe more so in the mainland than here. But if you're somebody who takes seriously faith in Jesus Christ, you can be cast in the role of, of, a, of a mad person, a, a wacko person, 
And yet, much like Paul in his context, we are people who are being faithful to the, the, the faith of our, our community as it's been handed down to us for centuries and generations. I think that's particularly true here in Ulster. There are a few places in church, or, or sorry, in the world that have been as well churched and have had such a strong history of evangelical witness as us here in Ulster. Whenever we present a living and a vibrant faith in Jesus Christ, we aren't inviting people to some esoteric and bizarre new religion. We're actually asking people to reconnect with the wonderful faith heritage that is ours here in our island. Paul refused to be cast in the role of wacky religious innovator when it simply wasn't true. Notice another thing about Paul's confession here. He focuses attention again on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He says in verse 15, I share the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In verse 20, when he's telling Felix all about the events in Jerusalem, Paul suggests that this is the real reason why he's on trial here. The Jews are pressing charges against him. The thing that's offended them is this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It's concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you. Paul pins his hopes on the resurrection of the dead, but of course, particularly on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friends, Gareth reminded us of this a couple of weeks ago. The absolute centrality of the resurrection of the dead in our Christian faith. We believe that Jesus Christ, who was physically dead, physically rose from that death. We believe that the risen Jesus lives now and is seated at the right hand of his Father in heaven. We believe that the risen Jesus will come again into this world to judge all men and women, to punish those who refuse him and to vindicate those who have trusted in him. We believe that the risen Jesus indwells us by his Spirit. We believe that he's here now, this evening. Friends, Jesus is alive. That's what we believe. Tomorrow when we go into our workplaces, into our offices, our factories, the hospital ward and the school classroom, we go and Jesus goes with us. When we go to our homes this evening, and when we struggle in our marriages in the weeks ahead and wonder if any single person in the world knows and understands that, the risen Jesus is in the midst. Whenever we put names on our voting papers over these next couple of weeks and we're scratching our heads and wondering and hoping that God will do something with our votes in our election of elders, 
remember that the risen Jesus is there in it all. Whenever we go out in the next weeks to to go and speak to members of our community around us, to begin to take steps to share the love of Jesus with them, when we do that with great trepidation, remember Jesus, the risen Christ. He walks these streets in our shoes. He speaks with our voice. He shakes hands with our flesh. Do you believe it? Paul did. And he was willing to stake everything on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Friends, we are resurrection people. Christ is alive and he's birthing a new life in us. One last thing about Paul's confession. Notice how he talks about the Christian community of which he's a part. Verse 14. I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way. He talks about Christian faith as the way. Luke uses the same phrase again in verse 22. He tells us that Felix was well acquainted with the way. It actually seems to be in a common common phrase or or nickname for for Christians at that time. In Acts chapter 9, when Paul was, or Saul, was setting off for Damascus, we're told that he was looking for followers of the way, that he could imprison them and bring them back to Jerusalem. Twice in chapter 19, where Luke tells us of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, he describes the people of Jesus as followers of the way. In chapter 22, at the Jerusalem riot, Paul himself talks about the way. Isn't that a brilliant description for followers of Jesus Christ? We are followers of the way. Jesus is the way. He told us that. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I wonder if we might be missing something sometimes here in the church of Jesus Christ. I I wonder if we've remembered that Jesus is the truth and the life, but we've somehow forgotten that he is the way. We'll say things like, if you believe the truth about Jesus, you'll receive the life of Jesus. But we forget in there that Jesus is the way. Since Jesus is the way, then life with God becomes a journey. He becomes the way to the Father, the road, the motorway that takes us to our destination. He's the road that we travel along. Since Jesus is the way, he becomes the model for us in everything that we do. We're no longer people who who try to discover what God wants us to do and then use our own methods to do it. No, we become people who discover what God wants us to do and then do it in God's way. We want to learn to do God's work, God's way, the Jesus way. 
So Jesus calls us not only to believe in him and accept the life that he gives, but to live and walk in his way. Everything is about following Jesus and doing things the way he did them. Paul makes this wonderful defense. And now the ball's firmly in Felix's court. Luke tells us that he adjourns the proceedings. He's actually stuck here, uh, truth be told. Felix can't convict Paul. Uh, No court of law would, would look at the evidence as presented on that day and see that Paul can be convicted of anything. But although he can't convict him, he's not willing or he doesn't feel courageous and strong enough to set him free. He's far too compromised for a radical step like that. First of all, he's afraid of the Jews. He's like so many leaders. Rather than giving the strong and courageous lead, he wants to do the thing that will allow him to keep favor. He wants, in this case, the favor of the Jews, so he doesn't want to fall out with them. And then there's his greed. Luke tells us later in the chapter that he keeps talking to Paul because he's hoping for a bribe. If you want a bribe, you don't let your prisoner free before he's paid up. So Felix takes the only option available to him. He postpones a verdict and he pretends that he's waiting for more advice from the Roman governor in Jerusalem. When Lysias, the commander, comes, I'll decide your case. I want to spend the rest of our time together looking briefly at a relationship, quite an unexpected one, I I would have thought, a relationship that develops between Paul, the prisoner, and Felix and Drusilla, the captors. Luke tells us that they sent for Paul frequently and they talked to him about faith in Jesus Christ. I I think that in itself is interesting. Sometimes we think we have to create moments for sharing the gospel. In my experience, those moments sometimes come along in the most unexpected ways. Um, I was talking to somebody recently who was saying, you know, they were just in the hairdresser this week past, and without any design or any, they ended up talking freely with their hairdresser about Jesus Christ. You'll you'll gather that it wasn't me. Um, I, I don't need to go to the hairdresser too regularly anymore. To understand this, this relationship and particularly the, the approach that Paul takes, I need to give you an idea of who, who Felix and Drusilla are. In those days, the Roman seat of power in Judea was not Jerusalem. It was Caesarea. So Felix, the guy sitting on the seat of power in Caesarea. He is the big guy for the whole Roman province of Judea. By this stage, he's governed Judea for five years. Before that, he'd spent two years in Samaria. And two years after this time, he's going to be uh, deposed and replaced from his post. Felix had a terrible reputation. He had begun life as a slave His brother, Pallas, was a friend of Emperor Nero, and it was through his brother's influence that he rose through the ranks. 
first of all from slave to freedman and then from freeman to governor. He's actually a really important person historically. He's the first ever slave to become a governor of a Roman province. So what we have here is a man from from very humble beginnings who rose to to a really uh, influential and powerful position. Tacitus, the Roman historian, said of Felix that he exercised the prerogatives of a king with the spirit of a slave. He was a nightmare. He's the kind of guy who, who killed some of his closest supporters. There are stories of him having them killed by, by dagger gangs just because it suited his purposes at that time. Drusilla is Felix's third wife. All three of them were princesses. We don't know much about the first one. The second one was the granddaughter of Antony and Cleopatra. Drusilla, we're told, is the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa. And Luke's already told us a little bit about him in chapter 12. Drusilla, therefore, is the sister of King Agrippa, who we're going to meet in the next chapter. Drusilla had a a reputation for overwhelming beauty, and that probably explains why Felix employed the services of a Cypriot magician to seduce her from her rightful husband and secure her for himself. With that picture of who Felix and Drusilla are, we come now and we look briefly at what Paul says to these powerful and immoral people who hold them captive. In general, Paul shared the gospel. That's what we're told in verse 24. But I think it's interesting here to notice the particular approach that Paul takes with this Roman governor and his Jewish wife. Felix's unjust rule and his awful immorality maybe explain the topics that Paul chose to address with him. Luke tells us in verse 25 that he discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. This isn't easy to work out exactly what Paul was saying here. Luke summarizes in three words Paul's interaction of two years. So, we need to be careful of reading too much between the lines. But we know that Paul spoke of righteousness or justice. Did he do that because of what he knew of Felix's terrible crimes? He spoke about self-control. Was that a, a direct comment on the lustful actions of Felix that drew Drusilla to his bed? He talked about the judgment that is to come. Is that when you're confronted with that level of, uh, of injustice and immorality that Paul thought the only logical conclusion he could come to is to talk of the judgment of God on these things? I think that's, that's possibly the logic why Paul talked on these particular subjects. But do you see now how uncompromising he is in his personal evangelism. Here he is, the captor, or sorry, the captive 
of a man of great power and influence and, and a high level of immorality, a man with a terrible reputation for violence. And does Paul soften his message? Does he chicken out? Does he water it down? Not one bit. Paul here tells Felix and Drusilla the hard truths about themselves. He confronts them with their very real sinfulness. He tells them of the certainty of God's judgment. He leaves them in no doubt that they need to be forgiven, that they need a Savior. And it's in this context that he talks to them about faith in Jesus Christ. Folks, Paul's experiences here as an evangelist make it clear to us that when the gospel is preached with integrity, some believe and others don't. It's always been that way. We see here in this chapter, Felix doesn't appear to believe. He keeps inviting Paul back for two years. The last that we hear of Felix is that he's replaced, but never any word that he responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. None of this deterred Paul. He preached always the same message. He didn't tailor it for the ears of his listeners. Friends, we must learn also to have that same steadfast conviction, that same integrity in our sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't change our message for our hearers. We don't water it down to make it more palatable for people to hear. Paul stood before Felix, this hugely influential and powerful man, this man who could set him free, who could relaunch his evangelistic career, but he doesn't waver. He doesn't defer to human authority. He speaks as he always does, unashamed of the gospel, leaving the hard parts in. Folks, if I'm honest, I think the hardest part of the gospel for us to share these days is the judgment of God on human sin. But Paul understood that a gospel without judgment is no gospel at all. God is the creator. The exercise of judgment rightfully lies with him. How can we call Jesus Lord if he has no right to judge between the right and the wrong of people's lives? Without judgment, we don't need Jesus. What do we need a Savior for if we don't need to be saved from the judgment of God on sin? Without judgment, we can easily do away with the cross of Jesus Christ. Why, why need he die if the sins of human beings are not under God's judgment in the first place? Friends, in a world of political correctness gone mad, in a world of power and of influence and immorality, 
which causes us to shudder. We need to recover Paul's simple confidence in the gospel, his integrity in the sharing of it. We need once more to learn to say with him, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. All. Let us pray.